Have you ever heard the phrase, a man is more likely to die with prostate cancer than from prostate cancer? Stay tuned on this episode of The One in Five as we explain what the prostate is and how enlargement and inflammation can affect men of all ages. Hey all, welcome to The One in Five, the show for those who want to know how to be healthy, how to stay healthy, and how to promote health in your community. I'm your host, Adam Renshaw, and today we have Dr. Oren Hansen with us, and we're going to be talking about prostate cancer. Welcome, Dr. Hansen. Pleased to be back, man. I'm really glad to have you back, particularly in such a short time since your last podcast. We had Really good uh, feedback from that show. I love so. to hear it. Cool. Good, well, man. Happy to be back. Well, I'm I'm happy you're here, and um, you know, I we're going to talk about the prostate in general, but we're going to really focus on prostate cancer in men. And so, let's just go ahead and dive in, uh, Doctor Hansen. Can you start by telling us what is the prostate? <laughs> So, yeah, that's something that you and I have, Adam. But our but any female counterparts in our lives will be be absent of. So this 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 talk, I guess we could probably almost warn our female listeners will might might be somewhat irrelevant to them. But seeing how most of the females direct a lot of the males around here towards their healthcare, <laughs> at least in my experience, they should probably continue to stay tuned in. And Agreed. So they can get the right information. Advocate for the men in their life. Nice. Um, but so the prostate is a small organ and essentially it's a sexual organ um, and okay. it's located around all the same sexual organs um, of, that men have. And so it's going to be kind of located between the penis, testicles and the and the the bladder um, kind of in that lower area that we call tend to call the perineum. OK, um, I've never heard that term perineum. Yeah, it. You don't it's have hard to, to describe. Yeah, sure. sure. But uh, it's kind of just the lower, lowest, most level of the pelvis. Okay. If that makes sense. Sure. And um, what it's primarily responsible for is secreting seminal fluids and seminal juices to mix with the sperm that's produced in the testicles so that when you when males have an ejaculation, in the, especially with the intention of impregnation and, and procreation, um, those fluids help transport the sperm cells, nourish the sperm cells with nutrients, protection, um, so that they can successfully, you know, continue about their primary uh, g- goal of, of fertilizing an egg. Sure. Okay. Um, so that's really why men have a prostate, women don't. Um, gosh, it. Th- We'll talk a little bit more how it comes into play and, and other health aspects other than, even other than cancer, really. Um, okay. But for the most part, it, again, it's, it's like we even alluded to on the, on the handout here, we got, it's a small glandular tissue and glandular tissue, like the thyroid gland, like testicles, like the pancreas, they, they're responsible for creating, um, some si- some kind of secretion or some kind of fluid. They they're, they're like almost little productive uh, organs. And like I told you earlier, this one produces seminal fluids. Okay. Um, it's about the size of a walnut. Um, the reason I brought up the the bladder is because the bladder 
the urethra that is the tube that runs from the bladder to the end of the penis. Okay. And so the urethra has to pass through the middle of the prostate before. So basically, <laughs> it's hard to illustrate, but it's like this. You know, you've got a okay. you've got a tube of that carries urine and other you know fluids um, for for sexual purposes, and that tube has to pass through the prostate so that it can absorb the contents produced by the prostate. Okay, and so you said it's a little like the size of a walnut, and as something has to go through it, if because th- what's one of the biggest problems that happens with the prostate? One of the most common ones I see is what's called benign, meaning harmless, prostatic, meaning related to the prostate, hyperplasia, meaning growing too big. So they enlarge. So you kind of go from a, you might be a walnut when you're in your teens, it might be a lime or a lemon when you're oh. older. It and and again, and the the reason that becomes a problem is because as the prostate grows outward and inward, and just in its general size, you can start to impede on the flow of that tube that goes through the middle, and that's the, the urethra. Tube that care, exactly. The so urethra. it makes it harder to pee. Makes it harder to pee. Well, and it makes it it can cause other urinary types of symptoms okay so for instance it might make it so you have to go pee all the time oh. because you can't fully empty your bladder because you've got a blockage that's the prostate okay so people feel like they've got to go pee often gotcha. when real when the reality is is they're just never actually emptying their bladder so that's benign prostatic hyperplasia or let's just use the acronym BPH, BPH from here forward because we need another healthcare acronym, <laughs> right? <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, benign to. prostatic hyperplasia is a mouthful, so this is probably appropriate. BPH is pretty good. So BPH causes the the prostate to enlarge. Um, how is this normally treated? Do you know? Is this um, how is this taken care yeah, of? This is a common one that I that we in the primary care uh, realm address and can and take care of sometimes it'll get referred out to urology and that's the specialist okay. that would that that probably knows most about that particular organ as well as the other male reproductive organs um remind me where i was oh bph treatment treatment so we, yeah th- really the first thing you want to do is you want to make sure that again this isn't something like cancer because you want to make sure that it's truly benign or harmless before you start ignoring it as a problem and just kind of treating it treating the symptoms of it and so one thing you can do is you can actually use the prostate screening marker that we'll talk about a little bit later called the PSA um, to make sure that that's normal but if people are having a normal PSA accompanied with these types of symptoms where they're I would I would honestly say that the uh Having to go to the bathroom often is probably the most common, especially at night, and that's called nocturia. Okay. So mental complaint of nocturia saying, I have to get up and go to the bathroom four or five times a night. I'm not getting any sleep. That's the most common presentation for BPH. And so then when we might check some labs, we'll take a history. Um, and you'll do that PSA. Just explain the PSA real quick instead of waiting for later when we get into the cancer sure, section. Sure, sure. The PSA stands for prostate-specific antigen. And 
we've learned anything about antigens over the last couple of years, what that is, is it's, it's just a little marker. An antigen is a little biological marker. And it, it, it's something that it, we can look for using certain DNA tests uh, that help isolate these types of markers. And then we can quantify it too. So we can see, we can, we can give it a value and, and, and say if that value is out of the range of normal, that's when we would be concerned. It's the exclusive and only screening tool that we use for prostate cancer. Okay. The PSA. You don't do a biopsy? That wouldn't be screening. That would be diagnostic. Okay, gotcha. So screening really refers to when you have someone without symptoms, and this is really important. We're going to talk about this a lot later on because prostate cancer screening is one of the most controversial types of screenings, and the guidelines are confused. They've been confused for many years. Okay. Um, so it it's kind of hard to exactly know what the right thing to do when it comes to prostate cancer screening, but the fact that it's still simple enough to where we only have one way that we generally do screen for it, that's the PSA, the prostate-specific antigen. Um, it generally rises in response to some kind of prostate inflammation. So okay. if the prostate is... Or enlargement? Is that the same inflammation and enlargement? or No, because hyperplasia, the, B, the H part of the hyper, uh, BPH, that's enlargement. And a lot of times people get that enlargement without getting an increase in their PSA. Gotcha. Um, but things like a cancer in the prostate generally cause a predicted rise in that PSA because you have an inf- a kind of an ongoing inflammatory process. Something's always going on there. But you can also see it in people who ride horses or ride bikes because of where the prostate is located by the perineum, the lowest part of the pelvis. And you're sitting, sitting on that all the and time. And you're getting repetitive bouncing or, or, or even minor, minor trauma to, the, to that area. It might cause a rise in the PSA. So you're asking all these questions when someone comes in. Ideally, yeah. It's not jumping straight to, hey, your PSA is high. Here's, we're you actually, have cancer. <laughs> we're actually asking even more. We're asking the majority of our questions before we even check the PSA. Nice. Okay. Because a lot of people don't get the PSA checked. And that's it m- through our recommendation. Okay. Um, they tell you, you, you tell people Let's not do a PSA. Right, right. And that comes from, gosh, this is probably going to be the meat of our, our discussion. Let's so just jump into it. Get into and it and yet, we can go back to BPH and, and okay. that treatment in a second. But if, if this is leading naturally to that, let's just, let's just dive in. Sounds good. Sounds good. So, again, screening tests are tests that we perform when someone doesn't have any symptoms, we're looking for a problem that may or may not be there, but we're not tipped off with any clues. And that becomes, that, that's what creates a screening test. If someone come in, came in saying, hey, I'm having bleeding from my urethra and I have a family history of prostate cancer, you're not screening for prostate cancer anymore. Now you're, you're trying to diagnose that problem. Um, and, and, and the the studies used to validate the screening tests are done on people who don't have symptoms. And so that's when, when you look at those studies, you have to really apply that the way the studies were done to how we 
actually care for people too. Um, because those tips, those symptoms, they really increase your chances of, of having a, you know, a real thing. Whereas screening tests, it's entirely dependent on the test itself. Okay. To tell you yes or no. So somebody's got no symptoms, you're going to do a PSA most likely. <laughs> well, only if they meet the right criteria for screening. And so there's a group of people out there that I rely on very heavily as, lo- as well as m- m- most primary care providers. And it's, it's an organization called the United States Preventative Services Task Force, or more acronyms, USPSTF. <laughs> the USPSTF is an independent organization um, of, of volunteer experts really in primary care, but have special training in epidemiology and biostatistics. So really what they like to do, what they're interested in doing, what they actually do is they ob- objectively look at all of the data behind all of the stuff we do for screening tests specifically. I don't know if we, we, there's probably not as many, well, every society has their own organization that kind of like gives this kind of like expert level insight to other things. Okay. But for screening tests, again, looking for problems and people who don't have physical problems or symptoms, primary care specialists are the ones who do it the most. Um, and ones who have knowledge and in, in statistics and epidemiology are the probably the most qualified to interpret these large amounts of data and say, is the thing that we're wanting to do, is it a helpful thing or is it a harmful thing? Because, spoiler alert, not everything we do in healthcare mm. is helpful. So and a fair bit of what we do in healthcare can be harmful. So, so we have to be careful. Agreed. Um, what, so then what, like, why would you not want to screen somebody for prostate cancer? I think, is that a good question? Perfect question. Okay. Actually, I, and I want my patients to ask me this question too, because when it comes to prostate cancer, the recommendation that the USPSTF has laid out for us is that they don't have a recommendation on whether we should do it or whether or not we should do it. Now there are good there are some screening tests for certain cancers that we screen for that get good support from the USPSTF. One of those would be the colon cancer screening has a grade A recommendation um, that's supported by evidence that's that's been evaluated, but the existing evidence that's been evaluated by that particular organization. Okay. A pap smear for, for women looking for cervical cancer has grade A evidence. And so these grade A evidence, they kind of break it down but anything that's grade A gives clear benefit by doing it. Okay. So if you're screening people with a grade A level supported screening test, you can feel pretty confident that you're only going to help that person and the chances of you causing harm are going to be little. Okay. Um, the grade B starts to fall a little bit below, but it's still mostly go ahead and do it. Um, the evidence just could be better, but we don't think you're going to hurt anyone by doing it. Okay. And then grade C says, I'm not sure if this is helpful or harmful. All the evidence that we say shows that it really doesn't make a difference whether we do it or not. Okay. Those get a grade level C. And that is what prostate cancer has, a grade level C recommendation for prostate cancer screening. Okay. So prostate has a C, uh, pap smear, um, a, a 
colonoscopy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is that the yep. the okay that has an a mm-hmm. um why are those a's in prostates c's perfect question thank you for that yeah they uh it has to do with what it's the the evidence looking at prostate screening prostate cancer screening has it been helpful historically that's exactly what they're looking for and so really to get to the punchline the most recent data on this probably i think it comes from t- 2018 it's it's called a Cochrane review and that's an organization that takes big giant studies especially well-designed studies like a randomized control trial. I don't know if you've heard of a randomized control trial. Yeah, with COVID, I was introduced to all kinds of okay, new yeah. terms, and randomized control trial was one of them. It's yeah. like it, it's it's the best kind kind of study that you can do in science, and it and it basically tries to eliminate any bias that the people conducting the study might have. So if it's the person who made the drug or made the test who's conducting the study, it's hard to falsify that information if you say it's a randomized control study, especially if it's a double-blinded randomized control trial, meaning that the person getting the test or the medicine doesn't know what they're getting, and the person giving the test doesn't know what they're giving. Oh, that's a double-blind right there. Exactly. And so, But what's even better than those is when you take what's called a a systematic review or a meta-analysis, taking all of these randomized control studies together and looking at them as a large group. And the advantage that you get from that is that you get a bunch of people. And the most recent meta-analysis that looked at this looked at almost three quarters of a million people. Um, and I believe it was in the United States, but it might have been included some European studies as well. Okay. And a brief side note on epidemiology and statistics. When you get a population like three quarters of a million people, that's a huge number. And you can, and what that does is it strengthens the power of your study. There was once a person who flipped a coin 25 times and got heads 25 times in a row. It's possible. Someone has gone and done it. But with each flip, the chances of you getting all heads continue to go down. Decrease, decrease, but that person, decrease. But that person who flipped it 25 times is going to go forward thinking that all quarters when flipped are heads. It's just a fact. Yeah. And that's, their, that's what would be called their anecdotal experience. But the reality is, is that person would have been more patient and would have flipped it 26, they might have got a tail. <laughs> or if they would have flipped it a million, but if they would have flipped it a million times, almost guaranteed they'd get very close to 500,000 tails and 500,000 heads. Meaning that numbers give you the truth. And when you can look at a big giant study like a, like a meta-analysis of all these randomized control trials you're going to find the best quality evidence you can get. In other words, when you have 750,000 people in this study, it's going to be really that it's going to you're more likely to get um Oh gosh, I don't I don't even know how to the word truth. this. The you're truth. More okay. to get the truth. Yeah. Um and that's what science and these studies is trying to do. It's not 
these are they start out as theories, right? And every you know everyone can make a theory. You don't have to have any scientific study to make a theory. You can just have a a thought or a hypothesis. But it's it's the studies that help us determine what's real and what's not. Um, okay, so there's this big study that happened. Yep. Seven hundred and fifty thousand people. What yep. came out of that? What they found is that half of them got the PSA checked. Okay. And then the other half didn't get their PSA checked at all. In the end, they found that people, especially when it comes to all-cause mortality, reasons for you dying for any reason, that the people who were getting their PSA checked, they did not live any longer than the people who didn't get their PSA checked. Interesting. And when it came to looking at people who died only from prostate cancer, the reduction from the people who were actually getting screened was mild, if if anything, mild if anything, mild at best. So for disease-specific mortality, meaning that people who die from prostate cancer, only a small, probably statistically insignificant number actually benefit in their mortality from getting the PSA checked. And so we say, well, then why wouldn't you just go ahead and get it checked? <laughs> you know, at least you know, and if it's if it's wrong, then then who cares? At least you didn't have cancer. Well, that's not entirely true either. There Explain. Are, I um I was fortunate enough in medical school. I had a I, we had a guest speaker from Dartmouth come and visit us, and he had written a book called "Less Medicine, More Health," mm. and he helped illustrate kind of what I'm about to talk about, which is the harms of medicine, of, of medicine, especially this day and age as technology continues to advance. And so one of his examples was he showed us a, uh, a map of the United States and he says, how many bodies of water can you see? And you could like see the Great Lakes or and, and in the Great Salt Lake. So he zoomed into Utah and he said, okay, how many bodies of water can you see? And now you can see... Uh, Gosh, what is the, there's a lake in the southern Utah that I forget. There's several other large lakes, and you can still see the Great Salt Lake. So then he zooms into Salt Lake County, and you can still see the Great Salt Lake, obviously, but you can now see every little pond and every little park and every little creek. And the question then became, how many of these bodies of water were going to cause a flood that wiped out any of humanity? Like, oh... Maybe just the one that we could see from way back out there from space, too. Mm. Do we need to really be concerning ourselves with these little ponds and these little puddles? Okay. Because are they ever going to actually cause a problem? And is looking for these things going to cause a problem? And what kind of problems would they cause? Well, what if I tell you you might have cancer? That seems like it might cause some anxiety. It might cause some insomnia. Um, it might... You know, at worst, it could turn someone off completely from wanting to come and get bad news from a doctor at all. Ever again. Um, yeah, I'm never going back to a doctor. I just don't want to. And, and that's a big reason why people In other don't words, come and see me. It could affect the, the quality of life. Is that sort of what you're saying? Exactly. And I think that's really where primary care providers need to step in and, and, and look at things like prostate cancer screening comprehensively and say, okay, this could benefit you, but it could harm you. So let's have a shared discussion mm. about whether or not we should 
check for prostate cancer in you. And that's what the recommendation is by the USPSTF. It's they recommend shared discussion with the patient so that you guys can, so that the patient and the provider can come to a conclusion about what's best to do, because it's not clear based on the evidence what is best to do. And so they've given us some guidelines to tell us who's at risk and who's not at risk. And the people who are at risk is who I really try to advocate for screening. Blood and urine and a family history of prostate cancer. <laughs> family history is is, is really biggest. always uh, the biggest one. Okay. Um, family history, especially um, first-degree relatives with a history of pr- uh, prostate cancer, I'm almost always screening those folks. Um, so you're giving them the PSA is what you're saying. When? Usually between ages 40 and 50, depending on the risk factors. Um, there, are a couple, there are a couple other risk factors that you mentioned blood. There's a couple of genetic mutations that, that lead you to have a higher risk for breast cancer and colon cancer. If you have either of those mutations and you have a family history and you are of African-American descent, you might get your first PSA offered at age 40. Um, but if you are, if you don't have those genetic mutations, you have a second cousin who had prostate cancer at age 50 and you just turned 50, I might suggest you get the PSA checked as well. Okay, let me, let me pose a hypothetical of course. to you. My grandpa had prostate cancer, recovered. My dad has prostate cancer um 44 what's your recommendation he's he was diagnosed at age 44 no he was diagnosed at 65 67 okay this is interesting so and 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 you said that one's doing okay and one is they're both doing okay. okay i mean my grandpa's dead now but he um he beat it okay Okay. Or, you know, so I've heard this. Let, let me just jump in because I want to say this. Actually, Dr. Mark told me this, and then I've heard it from my father too. You're more likely to die with prostate cancer than from prostate cancer. Is this a true statement? True statement. Okay. So, and, 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 and that is what leads to the recommendation by the USPSTF because they're looking at that too. They're looking at saying, what's the point? What's the overall point? Because really when it comes to caring for people in this country, we want to... M- we want to make sure people can live as long and, and as happy as they want to be. And if prostate cancer and screening for prostate cancer is compromising this in any way because the risk of the disease actually causing problems is also so low. Is it? Then we need to, we need to restructure how much of a priority screening for prostate cancer is. And that's kind of what's been going on over the last decade. Does that but contribute to the grade C Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely contributes to that grade C. And this is an interesting kind of statistic that goes along with what you just said. And it was kind of how I was taught about it. But based on autopsy results, big studies that they've done here in this country, looking at autopsies, people who died for any reason, but they go and do prostate biopsies. What they found is almost an age-correlated percentage incidents of prostate cancer in across the board. So what I'm trying to say is 70% of dead 70-year-olds that they did a prostate biopsy on 
had a prostate cancer they didn't even know about. <laughs> and so, you would you would then go on to up to like 99%, 90, the, a 99 the theory is year old. 99% of all 99 year olds <laughs> do have a prostate cancer. That's trippy. How mm-hmm. that's really weird. So, but I whether guess, or not it ever actually causes a flood or or right. a problem or or so these guys lived with it and had no idea they died from something else and during the and autopsy had, had no idea and had no idea that they actually had prostate cancer as well. So that right. begs this other question. Are there symptoms? What are the symptoms? So, in other words, if I've got blood in the urine, that might be a symptom. Could be a symptom. I might want to go see a doctor, and that might cause a doctor to say, oh, maybe we should test you after asking other questions. Maybe we should test you for prostate cancer or screen you. Well, you at that point you would say let's test you. So then you go for a diagnostic that'd test. Because that be a, you'd be trying to diagnose prostate cancer in that okay. in that in that. Setting. So you can't diagnose prostate else. cancer with a PSA, is what you're saying. A high PSA is not a diagnostic. It's not tool. a diagnostic test. It's okay. a screening tool. The biopsy is the diagnostic. Gotcha. Test. And that leads to the next steps, and that kind of also leads to the grade C recommendation too because the side effects that you can get from trying to find the diagnosis can be... <laughs> I heard tr- this. Can, can, ...can have lifelong effects. You go in and you start taking biopsies of somebody's prostate and it can cause problems, in other words. Exactly, exactly. It can also not cause any problems at all. Okay. You can get a biopsy and... and and actually, most of the time, I would say, I, I think that two, what I was reading this morning, I think there's only 2% of all the biopsies end up having much for complications. So that's not very a big deal. What, what kind of becomes a bigger deal is when you start to pursue treatment of something that might have never actually caused metastatic disease, meaning spread to the rest of the body. And that's where cancer becomes lethal. Is when it spreads. Is when it starts to spread to other parts of the body. So talk to me real quick about the 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 probability of prostate cancer spreading to the rest of the body. What's that look like? Without giving you any exact numbers because I don't know them, okay. but it's low. Prostate cancer is one of the... S- I'm going to back up just a little bit because I think our our viewers might not understand Listeners. completely. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you with your ears. We're not being recorded. That's right. <laughs> um, so our listeners might not know that there's a difference. There's so many different kinds of cancers, and they all behave very differently. Some are aggressive. Some really are pretty slow and what we call indolent or slow growing, um, uh, less likely to cause serious problems. Um, things like a melanoma that's known to be more of an aggressive cancer. Breast that's cancer a skin cancer, be, right? Exactly. Yep. Breast cancer can be aggressive. Um, certain brain cancers, lung cancers can be aggressive. When it comes to prostate cancer, it's not known as being one of the more aggressive ones. And in fact, when we do this shared decision decision making with some of our patients, you're kind of supposed to take into account their age because that gives you a predictability about how many more years they might live. And if some generally screening ends around age seventy is when we quit looking for it because that's when we that's when we anticipate that the person's 
going to die from other causes than the cancer. The cancer would have to be working much faster and causing more problems now than it ever, you know, for it to actually be the cause of someone's death. Um, so to really answer your question, it's, it's, it's one of the slower growing tumors. Um, and in fact, if you are anticipating your patient is, has other medical problems that they might die from in the next 10 years, they recommend against the, the, any sort of treatment. Uh, well, even screening for, oh, or even screening. So okay. yeah, I'm looking at, you know, if you've got a 70 year old that might be due for prostate cancer, but they also have COPD and congestive heart failure and all these other things that are affecting important organs in their body. You're like, uh, of all the things you've got going on, I don't think prostate's going to be the one that gets you. So let's just make, let's simplify everything and we'll do one less thing, which is not screen for prostate cancer. Gotcha. Because what that could lead, it could lead to a PSA that's elevated. Well, maybe this person rode their bike, you know, has been riding their bike every week because they're trying to get in shape or something because they know that they're unhealthy. So the prostate specific antigen comes back moderate level. What I can then do is I can just say, okay, I don't think that's real. It's moderate. So let's have, let's repeat it in six months and let's see if it's still elevated. That way I can maybe prevent someone from having to go to get a biopsy. And if it's still elevated above a certain threshold, I think four is the cutoff on a repeat. That's when you would send them for biopsy. Okay. Um, but again, if you were worried about causing excess harm, you might not want to do something like that because. Especially if the patient's older. It can lead to biopsies, which then can lead to things like treatment. Um, and then you can get some health effects that really affect people's lives more than any of the symptoms from the prostate cancer ever w- would. And some of those, we want me to go through those? Talk right about now? the treatments, please. Um, and when, when, well, when they would be recommended. I'm, I'm already getting a sense of when. So why don't you just talk about that and then maybe you can touch briefly on the when. Yeah, yep. So when you would do the the screening is when you get the a PSA level that's high enough with the right clinical history, family history. So you, you've sent this person off now to urology. That's the specialist that takes care of. Well, it helps, helps us diagnose prostate cancer and often helps screen it, although they probably work with cancer doctors called oncologists. Okay. Once they actually get the diagnosis, especially for things like chemotherapy. But prior to that, there's a lot of instrumentation um, and procedures that they do with the prostate. And so if they do the biopsy and it shows some prostate cancer, the next step is to determine if it's spread. So they can do that in several different ways. You can do like imaging to see if there's other cancers elsewhere in the body. Um you could probably just see when you're doing the surgery, there's probably, I'm not sure, I'm, you'd have to ask a urologist, there's got to be a way to look at the lymph nodes that would be considered regional spread because the lymph nodes help us fight infection and cancer as well. Okay. And so they would help get to that point. And then really it becomes controlling. If it's regional or local, it becomes controlling the spread of that. So if you just get rid of the prostate then, and all the contents and cancer within it, it theoretically shouldn't be able to then spread and metastasize to the rest of your body. Is that recommended to get rid of the prostate? If you have prostate cancer, that's almost always going to be recommended. Biopsy-proven prostate cancer is going to, well, 
I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. There's other treatments before removing the prostate. Sometimes you can do radiation, which is using radioactive wavelengths and beams to, to, to really focus in on the prostate and try and to use radiation, try, try to use targeted radiation to kill the cancer in the prostate. That's usually what it starts off with. Oftentimes that will shrink a tumor or shrink a cancer. Um, sometimes you can use chemotherapy, especially if that's spread throughout the body, then the chemotherapy can go through the whole body in ways that radiation can only focus because you want to radiate someone's whole body. Yes. Um, then they also have these little radioactive seeds that they can actually insert into the prostate that emit little you know, radioactive energy that affects the, the prostate cancer too. And so there's several different methods that you can do that are effective. And, and in fact, they've been really effective. A part of the reason that the screening test has also gotten less support is because the treatments for prostate cancer have gotten better reducing the mortality of it when you can die when you do diagnose it and it's so slow it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to screen it, it might mean that we can wait for symptoms to actually occur and I then gotcha. we can start treating it so almost rather than looking for a problem that's not there yeah. just wait for it to become a problem and then take care of it then so then i guess the question there is it or maybe the assumption is that you can wait for it to become a problem because not a lot of people, once it becomes a problem, go downhill super fast right after it becomes a problem and then they're dead. Exactly. Like with other cancers. Right. Exactly. Okay. And it's hard. It's It feels uncomfortable kind of telling patients to that that's okay as a doctor. You know, that this seems I, like weird doctor advice because... You're, you're trying to tell someone not to do something medical. And for the most part, we're always telling people to do more medical That's things. That's it. I, you know, so that hypothetical was not actually a hypothetical before. My dad has prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. And when I first heard about it, it they said, yeah, so the doctor said we're not going to do anything. Uh, he said he just wants to wait. He wants to check the PSA again. They did, they did a biopsy. And, and, and I was like, what? He's not going to do anything? Just gonna let you die of cancer, right? right you yeah. know, but it's, that's after many other subsequent conversations. Right. You come to the realization that no, 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 no. The doctor didn't say, "Hey, we're gonna let you die of cancer." Mm -hmm. It's what you're saying here. Yep, and yeah, that's my biggest fear. That's the biggest fear I have when I'm counseling on prostate cancer is that that you well and then you also have the fear that the you know the random person that doesn't have any risk factors who theoretically you shouldn't need to do any prostate cancer screening then develops metastatic disease that could have been detected by the PSA sure even though you die you know through shared decision making you decided not to do it you know so you're towing a fine line kind of you, for, you kind of, you're towing a fine line. You, you, I'm, I'm, I'm personally, I'm afraid of that one rare instance. But the reality is I can't be practicing based on of a fear of a, of a rare occurrence. I need to be practicing based on what the science says is the most accurate in terms of large population. What data. the 750,000 person double exactly. blind randomized yeah. control trial. You know, I was going to tell you earlier in this that uh, I don't, I do the same thing with my recipes now when I'm cooking. I, 
used to have like my mom had cookbooks and you know i would ask her you know certain recipes if i thought something was good now what i do when i want to find a good recipe that really tastes good mm-hmm. i search whatever i want to you know in a good like a google search and then i find the one that has the highest number of the <laughs> highest rating but with the most reviews okay. so if you get a recipe that gives five stars and you have 750,000 reviews yeah you're you, on it you can you're be, like i'm cooking this feel, tonight. i'm cooking this tonight bacon yes i get you only had five people saying oh this is the best thing ever they might have been the people who came up with it and they're biased yeah, and so right. they're going to give you bad information so that's just reiterating that's a good that. picture the, i think that's a good picture dr hansen um so we're we're really close to, to being done. I know we didn't really get back to BPH, um, which was the enlarge, an enlarged prostate and some of the, the treatments for that. But, but Dr. Hansen, we did touch on the cancer piece, which is really what I wanted mm-hmm. to talk about yeah. um, today. Um, so can you just tell us real, just real quick, if someone does have that enlarged prostate or that BPH, uh, what what can be done um, if it's not cancerous? So we've already concluded that it's not cancerous. What can somebody do to um, help shrink that prostate and and, and make it so that they don't have to pee all the time or you know? Yep, and super common. This would probably be relevant to a lot of the listeners as well. Um, there's a really popular medicine, appropriately named Flow Max. <laughs> <laughs> that maximizes your flow, right? Okay. Couldn't have said it better. Okay. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better. The way it does that, it's almost like a, it's kind of like a blood pressure medicine uh, or a cousin to some blood pressure medicines. It targets the smooth muscle that lines our vessels, including the urethra. Okay. Um, and it makes it relax. So it takes a little tiny caliber tube and it opens it up and makes it bigger because okay. the, the smooth, the, the the smooth muscle in the walls of these vessels, when it contracts, it makes them really small and it increases the pressure. When you get them relaxed, you open that tube, you promote flow, um, you reduce the resistance through that tube. And what I often see is just with that one medication, I tell people to take it at bedtime so that they can, well, or right before bedtime, and so they can have a nice void before they go to sleep. Okay. And then... Because it acts right away then. It probably starts working within the hour okay. or so. I'd have to look at the pharmacokinetics to be completely accurate and on that. And then they can release and then sleep. Because they empty their bladder, actually, and they're not just left with, okay, I'm going to lose a couple milliliters and then I'm going to have to, and I'm going to feel full two hours later and it's going to wake, excuse me, wake me up. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the Flomax is a really common one that I use. There is another medicine that also probably gets used in the instances of prostate cancer called finasteride. And what that is, is it, it competes with testosterone. It it makes it so testosterone can't have the hyperplastic effect on the prostate, meaning that testosterone is the thing that makes your prostate grow. It causes the hyperplasia. So if you can take a medicine that actually helps reduce the testosterone, then you then you keep the prostate from continuing to grow. I don't use this one as commonly. That's more commonly prescribed by urologists, but I do have patients who take it. And it's also a 
the reason it works is the same reason people who people who will use it for male pattern baldness that's also a product of testosterone okay. to try to fight those symptoms too and so it those are kind of the two main medicines i think of when it comes to bph and again really common lots of patients here who take who have that and these are non-invasive too and non-invasive and and it promotes sleep and anything that really promotes sleep which i think is the second most important thing that human bodies need next to water um is a good thing yeah that's a i I appreciate that because i i think what you're saying by that is that you're taking a really holistic view of the person like and i was this isn't the only piece that's affecting their life um is you know the fact that they can't pee it's affecting you know there's other things that come into play and if we can get sleep then that actually causes or can uh, uh, contribute to a healthier lifestyle well, overall well-being it might slow it might that's slow. the term overall well-being yes <laughs> it might even slow up indolent prostate cancer nice good sleep nice so yeah no it's good stuff and and uh, just to end on the holistic portion of this that's that's what primary care physicians are all about that's why we exist because we're supposed to look at the whole person and say okay we're a resource for you. These are the options, but I'm going to warn you about the side effects because it might affect you as a whole person. Whereas specialists, I've had, I've had, I've heard arguments with primary care providers on this very topic. The, the priorities, they're just different because you start treating more of an organ system and, a, and something that's invading the organ system. And when you're just focusing on the organ system, you forget about that person's social whole situation yeah, whole yeah. health yeah um, whole and person. you can be very passionate about fighting you know prostate cancer but kind of that passion might almost it cloud cloud a little bit yeah cloud the entire the holistic picture and thank god so. for our urologists and our oncologists absolutely. and absolutely. all of these folks that are doing this very targeted work and that are experts in that field and i i do thank god too for our primary care physicians who have that view that holistic view so um real quick i'm just gonna i'm not gonna do key takeaways here dr hansen i'm just gonna do one right here key takeaway um then you're more likely to die with prostate cancer than from prostate cancer but uh, go 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 see your primary care physician. Have a shared decision making. Yeah, exactly. About, about that. Exactly. Cool, man. Thank you so much. Hey, for thanks coming for having me. I enjoyed the talk. I appreciate the platform to share this information and uh, happy to come back anytime. Awesome. Thanks for listening. <laughs>